to need God. We talk about that a lot as God's people, don't we? How we need God. Question is, what do we need Him for? Take a deep breath. Just breathe in. Let it out. Did you need God for that? Yes. Everything. Everything we need God for. I want to begin this morning with with just two quick stories that illustrate, I think, so well the, the next truth that we need to be reminded of in this Lenten journey of ours as we're asking the question, well, what kind of king is Jesus? Charles Colson was a special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 69 to 73. You know the story. He was known within the administration as the evil genius. He served seven months in prison in 1974 after pleading guilty to obstruction of justice in the Watergate-related Daniel Ellsberg case. And it was what some believe to be our nation's greatest scandal. While in prison, Colson became a follower of Jesus. He came out with a new mission to mobilize the church to minister to prisoners. Founded Prison Fellowship in 1976. Years ago, he shared these words in a sermon. He said, the great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into prison and I see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, the achievements, the degrees, the awards, the honors, or the cases that I won before the Supreme Court. That's not what God's using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and I went to prison. It was my greatest defeat. The only thing in my life that I didn't succeed in. God used. Some of you know the name of John Stott, English Christian leader, Anglican cleric, shaped in many ways the course of modern evangelicalism. Chief architect of the Lausanne Covenant, described by many as a, as a Renaissance man with a Reformation theology. And he once shared the following story from 1958. He was leading a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. He said, the day before the meeting, I received word that my father had passed away. And so in addition to the grief that he was feeling over the loss of his father, he began to lose his voice. And here's how he describes the final day of that outreach. He said, it was, it was already late afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission. So I I didn't feel that I could back away at the time. I went to the great hall and I asked a few of the students to gather around me and I asked one of them to read for me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness from 2 Corinthians. So a student read these verses and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience. When the time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and the narrow roads from Matthew 7 and I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. 
I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in a monotone. And then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response. Larger than any other meeting during the mission as students came flocking forward to know Christ. He said, you know, I've been to Australia about 10 times since that event. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? Well, I jolly well do, I reply. Well, they say, I was convicted that night. Stott concludes with these words, the Holy Spirit takes our human words, spoken in great weakness and frailty, and he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and believe. You know that scripture that Dr. Stodd asked one of those students to read comes from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And it's a text in which he records a time of pleading with God to take from him something that is very difficult. He referred to it as a thorn in the flesh. Perhaps you've read that portion of his letter. It's in a section where he's defending his faith, defending his his position as an apostle of Christ Jesus because there are false apostles that that are surrounding and, and infiltrating the Corinthian church. And he describes them as masquerading as the apostles of Christ, just as Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And his status as an apostle was being called into question because because Paul was not an eloquent speaker. He admits that. His life did not show any evidence of greatness or authority. In fact, Paul is, is always referencing the suffering that he has experienced for the sake of Christ. That his greatness is somehow related to the suffering that God has has brought into his life. And he was being compared to others who, they looked a whole lot more impressive on the outside. They spoke much more eloquently. They appeared to to live life with more flair and and didn't have these sufferings that Paul was always talking about. And, And so then he responded to that, and by telling about a man that he once knew who was, who was transported into the third heaven. And he heard and witnessed all kinds of amazing things while he was there. Now, the language that Paul uses is very veiled, but he's obviously referring to himself because then he writes this. Listen closely. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. We don't know what the thorn was. The word that we translate thorn is one that's found in other literature, refers to a sharp, pointed stake. Paul calls it a messenger of Satan, given to torment him. 
probably a physical weakness of some kind, obviously causing pain and suffering. And so let me read again, in case you missed it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was pleading with God to take it away. And God says, in my translation, no, Paul, I will not do that. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Some of you feel like maybe you have been wearing Paul's shoes. Living with a thorn and a pain and a source of suffering, and it doesn't seem to go away. And when God says to you, I will not take it away, how do you respond? How do I respond? How do we as God's people respond? And this introduces us, I think, to what is the third non-negotiable truth about King Jesus. In this journey, as we move toward Palm Sunday, celebrating Jesus as the king, as, as a ruler, as someone important. And then at the end of that same week, we will observe his death on Good Friday. So we are asking the question, what kind of king is Jesus? Because as we know, something happened between the entry into Jerusalem as king and crucifixion at the end of the week. Something happened in the minds of the people who who ushered him into Jerusalem and then cried out for his death. What kind of king is Jesus? And the first truth that we reminded ourselves of is he, he's a king who came to die. He's a king who came to die. The reason for that is because his kingdom is a holy kingdom and the subjects are sinful and the only way for them to live with him in that kingdom is, is to have their sins atoned for. And that is a non-negotiable truth. Jesus came to earth to die for sinful humanity. And so as as we as God's people live our lives believing that Jesus is king, what is the message that we communicate about Jesus? Because there are lots of truths that, that I like to talk about concerning Jesus. That he came to show us the love of God. Yes, he did came to reveal the character of his father to us. Yes, he did. He came to show us what life is like when you live it in the kingdom of God. Those are all wonderful truths. But my challenge to you has been we must put at the top of the list of truths about Jesus that he came to die for sinful people. No one is exempt from that category. It's it's not popular to talk about sin. Certainly not something that that we enjoy talking about, but if we do not communicate clearly in our lives, the way that we live, the things that we say, if we do not clearly communicate that, then we set people up to misunderstand why they need Jesus to be the king of their lives. He came to be a saving king didn't come to save us from foreign armies. He didn't come to save us from the hardships of life. 
He didn't come to save us from unfair treatment by others. He didn't even come to save us from high taxes. He came to save us from our sins. He came to rescue us from ourselves. Second truth is what it is that he saved us for. He saved us from our sins so that we could live a nice life. Right? So that we could live the life of our choosing. Maybe not. Maybe it was the life of our choosing was the problem. Maybe he came to save us from that because we were choosing poorly. Came to save us from the sin that is a part of our being by virtue of being human. He came to save us from that sin that says, I will live life the way that I want to live in rejection of the Creator who saved us for Himself. He came to save us from that life so that we might experience both now and for all eternity the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were not saved to live a better life. We were saved to live the life that we were created for. Life with God. We need to communicate that truth. When people see us living our lives for Jesus the King, they need to see and hear that truth in us that we were saved not for this life. We were saved to live life in relationship to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So our text this morning is going to reveal what I think is the heart of the third non-negotiable truth. And now, this is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Kind of a, a similar theme here. Those words that we read about the thorn in the flesh and his reason for justifying his, his, uh, his experience as an apostle. There's some other stuff going on in the Corinthian church. They were definitely a congregation with issues. And this time they seem to be struggling with with not false apostles, but who are the real apostles? And if you've read through the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, you know that, that Paul is concerned about the divisions. They're following after who's the best apostle. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Cephas? Paul is saying, is, is Christ divided? Come on, folks. Let's get with it. That, that, he didn't say it that way, but that's, that's my spin on it, which is where he goes. And so let's stand, and we're going to read together uh, from 1 Corinthians, and let's listen to what Paul has to say about this message that he brings and who he is together. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Paul is, is painting a big picture here and saying, if I can say it this way without sounding disrespectful, the truth of the gospel, the message of salvation, the death of Christ on the cross, the saving of sinful people, all of that that we know to be so foundational to our faith, just doesn't make any sense at all to the world in which we live. Paul is saying it, it just doesn't make sense. The values of God's kingdom just do not square with the world's values. The values of the culture in which we find ourselves. Heather, can we put that next slide up? Paul said these words, we just read them together, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So I want you to just wrestle for a minute or two with a neighbor. What does this statement reveal to us about God? Ask your neighbor, what does this tell me about God? What does this reveal to us about God? Go ahead, talk about it for just a minute or two. Okay, we ready? What do you think? Terrell, what do you think? Surprises along the way. What else, Gary? What do you think? Okay. Which means then that God's standard is certainly different. Okay, excellent. What else? What else? He enjoys the humble. I like that. You thought it was a silly exercise when we began the service. You don't get credit for that. God gives us our every breath. Every breath. Every heartbeat. When you go to bed tonight, can you guarantee me that you will wake up in the morning? Absolutely not. Every ounce of energy that we have in our lives is from the hand of God. Of God. <clears throat> and sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it helps us to think about those little things that we don't really have control over because it reminds us of just how big God is as creator and as Paul says in Colossians 1, sustainer, the one who created everything. The one who created everything 
and who created for himself. And so, what I think Paul is driving at here is that, that God has or wants no challengers. God is pleased to take the things that make no sense, the things that are devalued, the things that are not appreciated, the things that, that are small and unimportant in, in the value system of our culture. And he uses those things. He brings credit to himself as a result of those things. I <clears throat> stumbled across this, this paragraph. There's a historian by the name of, of Garrett Fagan who, who summarizes just in a paragraph the, the Roman culture. This would have been the culture that, that these Corinthian believers are, are, are living under. And certainly all of the first century in the time of Christ. How they viewed values of strength and weakness. He says this. His book is called The Lure of the Arena. He says, ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent. And large swathes of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. More than most, the Romans idolized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over dominance. Losers paid a harsh price, and they got what they deserved. And those who resisted were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and to not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount in the Roman culture. And yet Paul says that the power of God is demonstrated in this world through what is not powerful. The wisdom of God is demonstrated in this world through things that are not considered wise, nor do they even make much sense most of the time. And so it's into that culture that we talk about Jesus riding on a donkey. A f- culture that is, is taken with, with power. A culture that is convinced that power rules and that weakness must be extinguished. Here comes the king riding on a donkey. And he is surrounded, as we've noted in the past, by a ragtag bunch of people. Most of them poor. Most of them lower class. Perhaps all of them on that day, lower class. And the reason that they have gathered around Jesus is because they're the folks that he has spent most of his previous three years of ministry hanging out with. He hangs out with the poor and the ragtag and the lower class. What kind of a king is this? Jesus came to initiate a kingdom where weakness is might. Where foolishness is wisdom. Where humility is esteemed by God. Where the first are last 
and the last are first, where children in their innocence and trust are the standard of measuring one's faith, and all of that brings pleasure to the king. Because those things, weakness and what society would call foolishness, become channels through which his power brings life change. Think back with me to the Ten Commandments. What's the first one? You shall have no gods before me. Why does he say that? Why does God speak into the lives of his people, the Israelites, at that point and say, shall I have no other gods before me? Because they had just left a country that, that had a plethora of gods for every occasion and every event. And God speaks right from the get-go and says, this is who I am and this is who I am not. I am not a God that competes with other gods for your hearts, for your affection, for your allegiance, because I am the only God. God speaks into the life of his people and says, it is, it is me It is through me that you have your breath. It is through me that you find your existence. Death on the cross, when we jump ahead to the story of Jesus in the New Testament, is the most life-giving activity that God does for lost and broken people. And after he rose from the grave, what did God do? Well, he left the work of the kingdom in the hands of fishermen and tax collectors. Not the rich and the powerful, but the poor and the outcast and the despised. You kind of get in a picture here? That the values of the kingdom make no sense in the eyes of our culture. And I think, I think it's, I think it's a huge visual aid but it's one that we can easily miss if we're not paying attention to it. And and it's one that probably as we begin to understand it more and more, we, we certainly do not find it very comfortable. The third non-negotiable truth about Jesus as king is that that his power can only be experienced in humility and weakness and brokenness. His power can only be experienced in humility and weakness and brokenness. Because if we are not humble about who we are, if we are not weak in our understanding of our strength, if we are not broken in our understanding of who we are before a holy God, then we are in fact a prideful people. And as Steve pointed out, God doesn't think highly of pride because pride means that we have placed something else before him. Something else is our God and it usually relates to self. When God's people 
accomplish things in their own abilities, through their own talents, they get the glory. Not God. God works through weakness and humility and brokenness because he gets the credit. Glory thieves do not experience the power of God because they are not doing what they do for God. It was years ago when A.W. Tozer said that if the Spirit of God were to depart from most of the churches in America, life would go on. They wouldn't even know that he was gone. Some of you have read a bit of Gregory Boyd, author and pastor. He speaks about the power of the kingdom of God as being the life force of the church in the world. And it's his opinion that, that the bleakest day in church history came in the 4th century when Constantine recognized the Christian church and gave it state status, legal status. It became one of the religions that was sanctioned by the empire. And Boyd says that on that day, the church laid down the cross, which is its power, and picked up the sword and began to exert a different kind of power. The church laid down the cross and picked up the sword. So brothers and sisters, the power of God that Paul is talking about in this text of the Corinthians, that power is most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is, it is foolishness, he says, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, to those who are being drawn into the family of God, to those who are recipients of His grace, they recognize, wow, it is the power of God. God ministering and saving through brokenness and weakness. Foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved, the power of God. I think the undeniable, and, and, and at the risk of sounding too negative, and I don't want to, but I think that the sad truth here is that, that the people of God spend a whole lot of time living with the value system of the world and not the kingdom of God. You know, we want just enough of of Christ's crucifixion to save us for eternity, but we want to continue to live our lives in this world as we chart the course. It can't work that way. That's not why Christ came. Christ came to to redeem us from living life the way that we chart the course. And when we do that, my friends, every day that we do that, we, we, pick, we pick up the sword. And we deal with challenges that come to us rather than recognize the challenges as opportunities to trust our God and to take care of us as we respond to his strength made available to us through the Spirit. Think about the greatest challenge that is presently in your life. 
You don't have to tell a soul. Just think about that challenge. Think about the feelings that you have with that. Think about the, the emotions that that challenge raises in your life. And then let me ask you, how are you dealing with that challenge? How are you responding to that challenge? Paul said, Lord, take this away. Three times he begged God, take this away. And I'm sure that his thinking probably went something like, I could be so much more effective if only you would do this. Think of what I could do for your kingdom, God. If you would take this away, others would see me as more credible. They wouldn't be constantly looking at this person who's always broken down and suffering and shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead and bitten by vipers for pity's sake. What kind of life is this? God's response is, it's the life that I have called you to. Because it's in that life that you are emptied of yourself and you are desperately in need of me. You see where this goes? Because God doesn't want us worshiping any other gods, whether it be the God of my self-esteem, the God of my personal comfort, the God of my future certainty, the God of, 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 you fill in the blanks. God wants me worshiping before him and finding him to be sufficient in the midst of life's hardships and trials, because that is where his power is available to us. Sure, his power can rescue us from all that stuff. And someday it's going to. But in the meantime, he calls us to be people who trust him. He calls us to be people who, who find our strength in his promise and his presence to be a God who is with us through the hard stuff of life. You worry at all? We worry about our health. We worry about the future. You know, I've been a pastor for over 25 years and I haven't written a book yet. And I'm worried about what people think. You think I'm kidding. We worry about finances. We worry about politics. And this may be offensive. We worry about the direction that our nation is going in. Here's my concern. Are we worried about the direction that our nation is going in because of the people that get lost in the direction? Or are we worried about the direction that our nation is going in because of the way that it impacts my life and my future and my security? It can be a very subtle thing. And we want to make the kingdom of God about those things. And we end up looking a whole lot like the culture in which we live with maybe just a little dab of holiness painted on top. Peter says that Jesus suffered. And when he suffered, he did so to leave us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Embracing the suffering and the hardships 
embracing our brokenness and our inability to fix and to change. Jesus surrendered in his humanity all the rights and the desires that he had as a human being to be valued and esteemed and appreciated. He surrendered all of those things. And it seems to me that that is where the Spirit of God wants to move us in the lives that we live, where we find ourselves in those hard places where the pain is just suffocating, where the disrespect is just maddening, where the uncertainty is just unnerving. That's exactly where God wants to meet us because we don't have the resources to change anything. I read the most outrageous story this week. Perhaps you have heard of this. I'd never read of it. Uh, It goes back to 1990. January of 1990, inmates that were a part of Columbia's Bella Vista prison. Nasty place. Tough, tough, dangerous place. They rioted after daily violence prompted prison guards to walk off the job. It was just so much violence and brokenness and corruption going on inside of this prison the guards just said I'm out of here and they left local leaders called on the Colombian army to intervene but days into the standoff a man by the name of Oscar Osorio he was a Bella Vista convict who had become a prison chaplain he gathered a handful of Christian volunteers associated with Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. Singing hymns and carrying white flags, Osorio and his volunteers marched in procession through the prison gates, unsure if their lives would be spared. That is stupid. (laughs) Osorio found that the prison's public address system was still working. So he grabs the microphone and he began to boldly call the prisoners to repentance with fear and trembling, stunning prison authorities. The inmates laid down their weapons. And just like that, the riot was over. But more than that, the killing stopped And the gospel swept through Bella Vista like a holy fire. What does the culture around us see in us as God's people? Do they see us daring? Do they see us as foolish? Do they see us as people who live with an upside down value system? Do they see us as people who are weak and broken and rejoicing in the power of God to make His name great through our brokenness, to make His reputation go to far places because of our brokenness? Are we a people who live according to the values of the kingdom, giving when we should be saving, 
sharing with those who don't deserve it, loving those who hate us and threaten us. Wow. It's ultimately about death to self. And we've been there before. And actually, we're going to circle back around to that next Sunday. This is going to tie in, I think, to the, uh, the fourth unnegotiable, non-negotiable truth of who Jesus is as King. Praise team, come forward and uh, prepare to lead us as we close this morning. And, and I want to pray for us as you come. Father, there is not a heart in this place that you don't know. There is not a thought that you don't know. I want to ask that just in these quiet moments, your spirit would bring to mind perhaps just one clear place event, circumstance, relationship in our lives where, where we are clearly not living in that situation according to the values of your kingdom. Where we find ourselves prideful, where we find ourselves just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, where we find ourselves gathering our own resources and finding what's out there so that we can fix this. Versus a surrender to you in our brokenness, an honesty in our inability to fix or to change and to call upon you whose grace is sufficient rather than take this thorn away. Good Father, teach us in the midst of this pain and this suffering to live with confidence and assurance and the power of your Spirit, whom you have given us as a gift to live our lives as followers of Jesus. So that our lives aren't looking a whole lot like our culture with a little holiness rubbed on, but that our lives just don't make sense in terms of who we are in relationship to others. In terms of who we are in not being concerned about ourselves and our stuff. Father, we pray that that you, in your goodness and your grace, would use us in our brokenness, in our weakness. Give us great humility and hearts that desire for you to be known in our lives more clearly than ever before. We pray in Christ's name.